Well, now, who doesn't want to be a part of an event with a big lion, right? Um, you know, every time I hear those announcements, or any announcement about what's going on here, really, I think it's a good time to be at NBC. Uh, good things are happening. I hear about reports in Senegal. I see about the mission going forward. Um, indeed, God is good, and may he get the glory. Amen. Well, I'd, uh, <clears throat> I'd like to open up for you this morning by telling you uh, about a friend of mine uh, named Lucas. Back when I was a poor seminary student, I worked at Starbucks to put food on the table, and um, it was a high-paying job, but uh, it certainly was fun to be part of a team and learn about the culture of the area that we were in. Lucas was younger than me, but very charismatic and personable. He was funny, loyal, and quite caring. In fact, he and I shared a similar affinity for superhero movies. We debated uh, which Avenger was more powerful, Thor or Hulk. Um, <laughs> Lucas was also an avowed atheist, which also meant we had lively discussions about our faith, or my faith, rather, and uh, the gospel and his reservations. Um, You know, as a seminary student, it was oddly refreshing to share my faith with someone who didn't believe, Um, and eventually I moved away, and we kept in touch on Facebook for a few years, but that faded away as well, until recently. About a week and a half ago, I, I received a call out of the blue from a former co-worker at this Starbucks I worked at. Um, hadn't talked with this person in nearly 10 years, and so I thought it was odd, and I called back, and I received some very troubling news. Lucas had passed away. The bright, charismatic, funny young man I knew was gone. And you see, one thing I didn't tell you about Lucas was that he drank a lot. He drank so much that he drank himself to death. And so as I received that news, my stomach was in knots because I recognized how sad and tragic uh, that was. I thought about his dad and his brother. I thought about his wife and what they, they must be feeling because Lucas was a victim of an addiction that took his life. And so my heart broke because I wondered, was there more that I could have done? Was there something else that I could have said? Did my life shine bright enough for the gospel Not only did one of my friends die, but I didn't know where where he was with the Lord. So it broke my heart because this is happening more than we think. In fact, there's a war raging in our nation and community to which educators, legislators, governors, even the president has spoken about this. I refer, of course, to the local and national opioid epidemic. Sadly, there's people... Young people who are dying because of addictions to painkillers, which can eventually lead to an addiction to drugs like heroin. Our children and grandchildren are being affected. The friends that we go to school with, in fact, studies are telling us this can begin as early as the eighth grade. And I'd simply say these are the Lucases of our lives. His vice was alcohol, but it's the same principle, and it's tragic And let me say something else. Some of us sitting in here today may be those that are struggling with addictions. And so let me just share with you a few statistics to bring this a little closer to home. 116 Americans die every day of opioid overdose, which actually kills more people now than car crashes, guns, or breast cancer. If I bring that a little closer home to New Jersey, the statistics tell us that over 500,000 people are addicted to heroin, which indicates a 20% increase, or 20% average that's higher than the, than the country. 
And if I bring it even closer to home, uh, studies have told us that 26 young adults with roots in the Somerset Hills area have died because of opioids. And as I mentioned, heroin experimentation is reported as early as the eighth grade. 26. Now, friends, that might not seem like a lot, but if you think about it this way, if just one child in our area dies this way, it is a huge tragedy. This is really close to home. I mean, imagine if that was your son, your daughter, your friend at school, and if it was, I suspect you'd fall to the ground and be devastated. And the harder reality is this, that before this even happens, you may be sitting at home preparing yourself for a phone call because you know it's a possibility that maybe your, your child or your, your friend or your family member, you might get that call that they've died. And I'd simply say those numbers should take our breath away because it is indeed a crisis. Over half a million people addicted. Over 26 local young people have died. How can that not break our hearts? Today we're continuing our series called Expanding the Table for the Glory of God. We just completed the four-week vision section of the series. Uh, Over the next two months, we're going to be unpacking eight core value statements that our leadership team worked hard to craft. And so let me just share with you just a moment here where we're we're going over the next uh, couple months. Today, uh, in relation with this, we're going to talk about what it means to have a passion for the mission locally. Next week, Dave will be here to talk about what it means to be biblically grounded and culturally relevant. And then we'll talk about what it means to be gospel-centered, how we have intentional spiritual formation, how we have a passion for the mission, not just locally, but globally, how here in our body we want to develop servant leaders, build strong families, and ultimately live in authentic community. The first value of our church we want to highlight today is this. We want to have a passion for the mission locally. We have a number of organizations we support, but it goes beyond just those organizations to how we live out our lives, that if we have a passion for the mission of God locally to see the gospel proclaimed and demonstrated in our area, we have to care about things like an opioid crisis. You know, this weekend, a majority of our churches in, churches in this area are preaching about this topic because there's a recognition that it's serious. In fact, we're calling this weekend, Hearing the Cry. Because the stats I just showed you are evidence of a cry for help from hurting people. They are a cry for the church to stand in the gap, not to run away from the epidemic, but to run towards it with the hope of the gospel. And so our heart behind this weekend is, is simply this. We want to raise awareness of the situation and save lives through intervention. And ultimately, as a church, we want to be about gospel intervention, You may remember last week we discussed our act priority, our our mission priority, and one of the ways we want to accomplish that is, is through this strategy to creatively come alongside our local community leaders to meet their needs and encourage those concerned with cultural renewal. And in an effort to address this this heroin epidemic, we're partnering with a local organization called Community in Crisis. You can check out their website at www.communityincrisis.org. They've really been on the forefront of this, this epidemic, helping to mobilize faith leaders uh, to do something about it, to preach this weekend. In fact, uh, myself and Johnny Graves attend their monthly meetings to talk about what's going on. They have a new facility in downtown Bernardsville called the Community Hub, where students can go and help, get help if they're struggling. 
They're providing resources and programs for parents and families who are affected by this. We even partnered with them on a underground sessions last year. They're just doing great work, and we want to support them. And I know many of us in here have served in places like Market Street Mission where this, this situation is front and center as well. But church, my challenge for us today is simply this. If we are going to have a passion for the mission locally, we will have a passion to meet the needs of our local community. We will care about them. And if we have a passion for the local community, we need to recognize two calls that I want to talk about uh, briefly today. Number one, uh, we have to understand a call to love the city or the town that we're in. And number two, we have to understand our call to gospel neighboring, uh, the second of which I introduced last week, but I want to take a little bit of a, a deeper dive at today. Now, before we look at God's word, would you please pray with me? Father God, we come before you and we just cry out, Lord, recognizing that there, there are so many needs in our local community, Lord. There are so many things that are hidden behind, um, behind what, what we, we, we act like is going on, Lord. And so I pray that you, you, would, you would give us a heart to love the people that are around us, even those that are difficult, Lord. We pray that you would help us to have your discernment that comes from your spirit that would know what's going on in the hearts and souls of people that are, that are maybe even sitting next to us, Lord. Help us to have a heart for this area around us, all for your glory, and that your kingdom may be advanced. And we pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, loving our city and loving our local community is a biblical call that God has given to us. In fact, a key question we asked last week was this, will we love our neighbors even if they don't believe? And we should. Because here's the truth, people often don't listen until they know that we care. And so we need to care with our actions. And so the first call that we have is a call to love the city. And the prophet Jeremiah wrote about this to his letter to the people in exile in chapter 29 of his book. And he writes this, Thus says the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were God's chosen people. They were called to set themselves apart and follow him with all their hearts. However, they chose to disobey and eventually they were conquered by outside enemies. One of those enemies was the Babylonians who defeated the southern kingdom of Judah and carried them into exile in Babylon. Once there, the people of Israel cried out to God and asked for deliverance. And as they cried out to God, they expected that the answer they got from him would be to return quickly. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Jeremiah is about to tell them that they're going to be in Babylon, in exile, for a long, long time. And so they should be prepared to wait. Look at verse 5. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. In other words, in other words, he says, essentially, you are going to need to be prepared for the long haul, Israel. We're not going home tomorrow. You need to hunker down, build a house, plant a garden, because a brother's got to eat, right? Get a mortgage, because you are going to be here for a long time. And not only that, verse 6, he says, take wives, and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Don't just build houses. Get married. Have kids. And when your kids are old enough, help them find a spouse who is suitable for them. In other words, build a family. Because this is not going to be some quick, easy time in exile. You're going to be here for a long 
time. But then Jeremiah says something very striking. He tells the nation of Israel, the people in exile, how they are to act in a foreign land. And it was a good question for them, and it's a good question for us. How are we to live in this world that is not our home? And Jeremiah writes this, verse 7, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. For in its welfare you will find welfare. Seek the welfare of the city I have sent you into exile. Pray for the city. Why? For in its welfare you will find welfare. Now take that in. Because Jeremiah is exhorting the people of God in exile to pray for the pagans around them. He says, settle down, build houses, start a family, pray for those that are around you. But more than that, seek the welfare of them. Now you have to understand that part of the Babylonian Empire's goal was to erase the spiritual identity of their conquered people. They would enculturate their elite classes and make them accept the Babylonian culture. And so when God tells the exiles to build houses and start families, he is telling them to maintain their identity as God's chosen people. He's telling them to make a difference in their city where they are living. Now take notice of that word welfare, because it's the Hebrew word shalom, which meant peace. However, it wasn't simply peace like, well, let's not fight, let's get along. It was something that you wished upon other people. It's like saying, I want to bless you in such a way that you will prosper. That What God is saying here is we want to bless our community in such a way that it will flourish. And that's what God is calling his people to here. He's saying, be the very best residence you can possibly be so that those around you will see a difference. And what's even more striking is this this is the context of one of our favorite memory verses, right? Jeremiah 29, 11. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. What? God? Are you saying that your plan, God, involves us being a people in exile? Yes. That the plan was for us to have hope in exile. That the plan was for his people to have welfare, to have shalom while in exile. How? By seeking the welfare of the city. By helping it flourish. Now, interestingly, this isn't simply an Old Testament concept. It runs throughout the grand narrative of Scripture. If you skip ahead to the Newer Testament, you'll find a, a similar concept in the Apostle Peter's letter. Chapter 2 of that, verse 11, Peter says, Beloved, writing to the church here, to Christians, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. See, Peter's saying the same thing here. He writes to the church during the time of the Roman Empire when things weren't going so well for the Christians, when when you didn't really want to admit that you were a Christian, and he calls them sojourners and exiles, which is actually better translated as resident aliens. In other words, we are living in a foreign country where we are not welcomed, but we're still living there. What should we do? Peter says, abstain from the passions of your flesh, which war against your soul. What does that mean? Well, it means that we are called to live so differently that people around us will notice. Why? Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. 
Did you hear that? We are to keep our conduct honorable so that the people around us, the community around us, may see our good deeds and glorify God. Why? So that more and more people might see a difference and experience the living hope Peter talked about earlier in his letter. And so in both Jeremiah and 1 Peter, God wants his people to stand out in the midst of a hostile culture for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of souls who still need to hear about the saving grace of God. Because here's the truth. When you love the city well, a door is open for the gospel to be proclaimed. Did you hear about what they were talking about, about a water pipe in Senegal? When you love the city well, a door is opened for the gospel to be proclaimed. And you know what? When our good deeds are evident, when people see something different, they will ask questions. And Jesus himself understands this. He tells us that we're to be salt and light in a dark world. He tells us that our deeds should make it evident to those around us that the kingdom is here. Matthew five fourteen. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. Don't keep it hidden. Don't hide it under a bushel like that old song goes. Do you remember that song, This Little Light of Mine? Do you remember the hand motions? You know, This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Friends, we have to let our light shine. Why? Verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you see a pattern here? Seek the welfare of the city. Act in such a way that those around you who don't believe will see how much you love them. And as a result, they'll be pointed to our heavenly Father. And here's the amazing thing. Listen, I, I want us to see this, that, that within these passages and their reverberation through history, we see that the church spread because God's people in exile had a hope and a missional purpose. The church spread because God's people in exile had a hope and a missional purpose. And as a result, people whose hearts had been transformed by the gospel of grace, by an encounter with the risen Savior Jesus, chose to turn around and live such good lives in an unbelieving world that heads turned, that people wondered what was up. Because they loved their city so well, the people around them noticed when they were gone. So as a church, I would suggest, here's what we need to do. We need to get fired up about the gospel Our hearts need to be burdened for our area, for the people around us. We need to look at something like an opioid crisis and say, no, not on our watch. Because God has sovereignly placed us in this region for a missional purpose. And people need to see our good deeds so that God would be glorified. We need to be part of pushing back the darkness, engulfing our community. And you know what? Things are already starting to happen. In fact, some stats from the Narcan Saves uh, campaign, which is a drug that helps uh, um, overdoses be reversed, tells us that in 2015, uh, 138 people were saved. 2016, 217, 2017, 251, which represents an 82% increase. So, So awareness is going out about this. And again, I'd highlight 
the efforts of that group Community in Crisis here. They've really been on the front lines, and I want to share with you a short video they produced that highlights this epidemic. It features a Ridge High School graduate named Tobin Heath, who uh, plays soccer for the U.S. women's team. Tobin's actually, I'm told, one of the best women's soccer players in the world. She's a Christian, and she's from Basking Ridge. So, let's watch. I'm Tobin Heath, professional soccer player, two-time gold medalist. I'm Tobin Heath, professional soccer player, two-time gold medalist, U.S. Women's World Cup champion, and 2006 Ridge High graduate. Fact, one in five high school students have admitted to using prescription drugs without a prescription. Prescription drug abuse is happening right here in our towns, and in many cases leading to heroin use. Discard your unused pills and lock your medicine cabinets. We've lost too many lives already. And if you're sitting there thinking this can't happen to you or your child, think again. Denial is as deadly as the disease itself. If you want a reminder on those stats, there's actually an insert in your bulletin that I invite you to take home. But denial is as deadly as the disease itself, which I think is a true statement. Now, if you're somebody here who is struggling with opioid addiction, heroin addiction, or, or you're fit, you know, a family member who is, I, I understand the stigma that goes with this. I understand the shame of admitting that it's happening to you or someone you love. But let me encourage you today, don't carry that burden alone. I'm not suggesting you go out and just tell anybody, but, but find someone you trust. Get help. Don't walk that road alone. Talk with myself, Pastor Dave, Johnny Graves, all been on the front line of this. And we want you to help you get help. And church, let, let's recognize that this is a reality. And it's happening right here in our midst. People are dying. And they need the light of the gospel to shine hope in their situations. Because church, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a spiritual component to the solution to addiction. Because the gospel provides a real answer to hopelessness. The gospel provides the real reason why we don't have to live in denial, but rather we can bring our issues into the light. The gospel provides an answer to the shame, pain, and suffering of this world because our God really does promise a hope and a future. So in this crisis, we have to get that message out. We have a call to love our city well because it brings glory to God. So build houses, start families, let your good deeds point people to Jesus. That's our call. And that gets us to the second call of gospel neighboring. Now, I introduced this concept last week, but I'd like to mention it again because I think it's extremely important um, if we're going to have a passion for the mission locally. Because the mission locally is not simply about a program we do here at the church or a program that happens out there. It's how every Christian lives their lives every day. And so Tim Cower, as I mentioned last week, defined gospel neighboring this way, and it bears repeating. Gospel neighboring is a mandate to meet the needs of people around you, whether they believe or not. You see, gospel neighboring is in many ways about displaying mercy to those around us. In his book, Ministries of Mercy, Keller says that the ministry of mercy is the meeting of felt needs through deeds. The ministry of mercy is the meeting of felt needs through deeds. And in terms of an opioid crisis, there's a lot of intersection. How can we meet the felt needs of our community, which is a challenge in an affluent area? 
But let's look back at that section of the parable of the Good Samaritan to see just a couple principles on gospel neighboring. Remember in the story, there's a man beaten and bloody on the side of the road. A priest and a Levite come by. They, they walk right past him. But a Samaritan, Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 33 says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, this hurting man, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So let's look at the Samaritan's actions. Now, we already learned last week that he engaged in neighbor love to his enemy, but what specifically does he do to address this man's felt needs? Well, I think we see four principles here. First, take notice that his heart was burdened for this man. It says in the text that when he saw him, he had compassion. In other words, he empathized with him. He was burdened for him. In fact, the Greek word uh, for compassion literally means his gut was wrenched. That, That if you want to be a gospel neighbor, the first principle you must practice is to be empathetic. He did not look at the man who was beaten and bloody and say, well, that's a shame. He should have known better. No, he didn't walk on by. In the core of who he was, he was moved And when it comes to our neighbors and their plights, our hearts need to break, friends. This means we have to know our neighbors so we can be aware of their needs. Because we can't display mercy if we do not know where mercy is needed. And in the context of what we're discussing this morning, I think we have to have care and compassion for individuals who are struggling with addiction. Secondly, the Samaritan met this man's needs through physical presence. See, the text says, he went to him, right? It's the same principle we've been talking about throughout the message. We, we need to run towards people who are sick and hurting and not away. In other words, we need to, secondly, be present in the lives of our neighbors. Sometimes people who are, who are hurting don't need you to say anything. They just need you to be there. And they need you to be brave enough to be there. In fact, you know, I, I didn't mention up here, I've, I've been to Senegal several times. And a couple weeks ago, when we sent the team off, a man named Bo Columbine was here. One of our world partners prayed for them. Um, I remember on my second trip, Bo was telling me about a time um, when he and his family, they went out to the village, or I think maybe he went out to the village. And um, he said, you know, if I'm going to build relationships with people in Senegal, I have to be able to eat their food. I have to be able to go into a situation where maybe I might get sick for the sake of building that relationship. And he said he did a couple times. He said, but that relationship was built. It's so important for us to be present with people in their hurting. Third, the Samaritan provided for this man's physical needs. That he saw there was an immediate physical need and so he helped him. And so the third principle the Samaritan teaches us is to be generous. Be generous with your time. Be generous with your finances. Be generous with your grace. And in so doing, we can help meet the physical needs of those around us. See, he assisted in providing basic medical needs, food, meals, shelter, and transportation. And I want you to notice something, that the Samaritan would not have known the extent of this man's uh, physical needs or been willing to help unless he first was burdened for him and second, spent time in his physical presence. So we need to do those things if we're going to accurately assess what the physical needs are. And that's hard. But true gospel neighboring is a sacrifice. Now, I'm not sure what the actual needs of your neighbors are, but I do know there's needs. 
Now, maybe they're not as physical as this man. Maybe they're, they're relational. But the challenge is to take a step towards being a better gospel neighbor. And the Samaritan's example doesn't stop there. Look at verse 35. And the next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And so finally, the Samaritan did not abandon his neighbor. He went the extra mile for him, even at great cost to himself. And so the final principle in gospel neighboring, I think, is this, to be long-suffering. You see, I think too many times we miss the deeper gospel reality because we give up too quickly on our neighbors. We do the bare minimum because we view them as a, a nuisance. You know, perhaps we buy somebody dinner one time, but then that's it. Now, that's certainly not a bad thing, and I'm not saying that we should always offer money or whatever it is, but I do think we shouldn't give up after we've done one thing. If we, are tr- if we are to truly display the gospel to our neighbor, we cannot abandon them so easily. We cannot treat them like a project. And if we are burdened for them through prayer, if we've sat with them in their moments of need, if we are well aware of their true physical needs, we're less likely to abandon them. Church, we are called to love our city. And we love our city by answering the call to be a gospel neighbor. Remember Jesus His final challenge in this parable was this, go and do likewise. Be like the Samaritan. Will that be easy? Absolutely not. But that's my call. And and if you're a follower of Christ, that's your call too, to let your light shine in such a way that those who don't believe would praise God. And if we're truly to have a passion for the mission locally, the way forward is to answer the call. And yet, I think there's many of us who are resistant to the call. It's too hard, right? It's been two weeks of challenging messages. I get it, right? But when I look at my own heart, I have to realize that the motivation of all of this is the grace of God, that I didn't deserve it. That when I was dead in my transgressions and sins, as Paul writes, God made me alive. That he bandaged me up and made me new. And he has good works prepared for me to do, and for you too, if you know Christ. That he placed me here in Basking Ridge, New Jersey, for such a time as this, and he's done the same for you in whatever town or city that you live in. So let's close by coming back to the plague that's ravaging our town, that opioid addiction I mentioned. Combating it as a church will require us to answer the call to love our city and choosing to be a gospel neighbor. Remember what Luke told us at the beginning of chapter 10 of his gospel, verse 2? And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers into his harvest. That the harvest is plentiful, but we need more workers. We need people who are burdened and want to be involved. And again, I mentioned if you forgot those stats or how to be involved, there's an insert in your bulletin, and I encourage you to take them home, pray through them, go to the Community in Crisis website, see where you can help. Talk with me. I'd love to connect you and pray. Pray, pray, pray for our city. Worship team, would you come back on the stage? There's one more song they're going to do. And as they come, let me close with a story, an old story. Because in 165 AD, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, a devastating epidemic swept through the Roman Empire. Some medical historians suspect that it was the first appearance of smallpox in the West. And regardless of what the actual disease was, it was lethal. 
And in his book, The Rise of Christianity, uh, sociologist and historian Rodney Stark details out the, um, the, the details of this. He, in fact, he estimates that anywhere from one quarter to one third of the Roman Empire's population died during a 15-year duration of this epidemic. That included the Emperor Marcus Aurelius himself. Now, it's an understatement to say that this plague turned the Roman Empire upside down because so many people died that families and social bonds were, were torn apart, that people were without hope and scared. However, it was in the midst of these horrid conditions, Stark notes, that Christianity was able to flourish. Why? Because the Christian faith provided an answer to suffering and, more importantly, Christians were willing to risk their lives for the sake of the sick. Christians were in the minority even then, and they made a huge difference. In fact, when Rodney Stark wrote the book, The Rise of Christianity, he wasn't a Christian. One of the things he says is that whenever Christianity had an influence on the culture, things got better. And so as a result of his study, Stark himself became a follower of Christ because he noticed things like this. During the plagues, even the prominent secular physician Galen ran away from the plague, but the Christians ran toward it because they were not afraid, because they knew their ultimate hope had, they had in the life to come, and they obeyed the call to love their neighbor, to love their city as Christ loved us. Did you hear that? In other words, Christians stood out because they were the ones helping the sick. And as a result, the gospel and Christianity spread like a wildfire. And so as we survey this crisis I mentioned today, we have a similar opportunity to make an impact. And so today, let's be the ones who are helping the sick. Let's not walk past those that are dying. Friends, let's be the church. Let's be the people who seek the welfare of the city, who live such good lives that our world may see our good deeds and praise our Father who is in heaven. And as we do, God will be glorified. The table will be expanded as we know our neighbors and love them with the great love that Jesus Christ loved us on the cross. And because of him, hope is here. And we are called to be dispensers of this hope. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us.